0: conversations with andrew and phil i'm your co-host phil Mm -hmm. and i had the great pleasure of seeing today's film in 70 millimeter on film of Ah. course and with the filmmaker in
1: attendance that's pretty cool at a at a very historic and well-renowned theater no less yes and yes absolutely Uh, I'm Andrew, I'm your other co-host and I too saw this in 70mm on film and I would recommend to all of our listeners to see it that way if you can at all because this is an extremely sumptuous film and I think that the particular quality of especially the color in this film uh, probably translates much better to film than it does to digital. I would imagine it was just rich in a way that I haven't seen in the theater for quite a while I think it's almost always without exception better to see it on
0: seventy millimeter if you have the option yeah uh, yeah the the film that we're gushing over already <laughs> today is Phantom Thread mm. uh, written and directed by paul thomas anderson uh we're going to I think we're going to have a fun conversation about this I think so uh. But before we do that, I want to tell you guys out there where you can find us on the web. You can go to our blog, which is found at www.in-the-q.com. We also have a Facebook page. Just search on Facebook for In The Q. Q Q-U-E-U-E is how that word is spelled. Indeed. And on both the blog and Facebook, you can find all our episodes. Uh, They get posted as they are released twice a week. Also on Facebook, though... If you're on Facebook, we encourage you to visit our page and communicate with us. And if you would like to put in a request for a film you would like to review with us on the show, you can do that on Facebook. Yes. And, yeah, it's actually a really fun thing for everybody to do. So please check us out there. Uh, Also, we have a Twitter. It is at ITQ Podcast. And lastly, you can find us on iTunes or on podcasts or overcast aggregate apps and probably other ways too. So without further ado, today's film is Phantom Thread. You can sew almost anything into the canvas of a coat. When I was a boy, I started to hide things in the linings of the garments things that only I knew were there. Oh. Secrets.
1: Good morning.
0: Will you have dinner with me?
1: Yes. I feel as if I've been looking for you for a very long time. You look Reynolds has made my dreams come true and I have given him what he desires most in return (laughs) every piece of me Why are you not married?
0: (laughs) Her arrival has cast a very long shadow She's barely looked at you this evening, has she? May I warn you of something? My brother can feel cursed, that love is doomed for him. I don't like the fabric. Maybe one day you'll change your taste.
1: Maybe I like my own taste. Just enough to get you into trouble. Perhaps I'm looking for trouble. Stop! There is an air of quiet death in this house. You're not cursed, you're loved by me. Stop playing this game.
0: What game? What precisely is the nature of my
1: game? All your rules and your clothes and all this money and everything is a game. This was an ambush. Stop. Are you sent here to ruin my evening and possibly my entire
0: life? Stop
1: it. Whatever you do, do it carefully.
0: You heard the score by Johnny Greenwood.
1: Yes, yes.
0: Uh, who? This is his fourth collaboration with Paul Thomas Anderson, actually.
1: Yeah, the first was "There Will Be Blood," right?
0: Yep, and he did he did them all, even "Inherent Vice," which which had a period soundtrack of rock songs as well. Sure. Uh, but it also had uh, this unique kind of dissonant, like, atonal score by Greenwood, who is the guitarist for Radiohead. Yeah. Um. Okay, so let's get down to it. This is the film, latest film by Paul Thomas Anderson, written and directed by him. Again, starring Daniel Day-Lewis for the second time after There Will Be Blood. Yes, indeed. And uh, as you probably know, Daniel Day-Lewis has retired from acting, with this being his final film. He's done. And one of the amusing anecdotes that I heard from Paul Thomas Anderson when he spoke after the screening was that... uh, (coughs) Daniel Day-Lewis didn't announce his decision to retire until after the film was finished. Oh, uh, wow. so, he, so Paul Thomas Anderson was kind of wondering if, if he did something to influence the decision. <laughs>
1: um,
0: the story is set in London in the 1950s. Uh, Reynolds Woodcock is Daniel day lewiss character. Mm-hmm. He's a dressmaker who designs costumery for royalty and other well-to-do folks in I think not just English people, too, but whoever has the the position and the wealth to high society, mission him high society, the world over. Yeah. And uh, once day early in the film, when Reynolds goes on holiday, he encounters Alma, who is a waitress at a kind of village resort at a very fancy kind of eatery. little cafe cafe of sorts um and he seems to be kind of drawn to her right away by her graceful clumsiness in the way the way she kind mm. of stumbles mm. uh about and 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 this strikes him as kind of charming and and he's charmed by her uh they begin a relationship and that's kind of what the film is really about is their relationship yes indeed um you could call it a love story a romance it's of course you know no love story is ever really what it seems, at least the best love stories aren't. And in this case, you have a tumultuous relationship between these two characters. To say the least.
1: Yeah. And um, actually, between all of the characters and Reynolds. Yes, that's I would true. Say, His I would say he is surrounded by
0: tumultuous relationships. Mm hmm. His sister, played by Leslie Manville, is kind of the, the domineering presence in his life who kind of overly controls Reynolds'
1: affairs. Keeps him on the straight and narrow. Mm-hmm. Make sure that he um, gets done what needs to get done. And then uh, Vicky Creeps, who plays Alma, the waitress,
0: she's the one who sort of feels like the odd person out in this case, as she's a little mm-hmm. bit earthier and more uh, warm and friendly than the Woodcock, the House of Woodcock, as it were. Yes. So, okay, number one, the movie has what appears to be just flawless period detail. Yeah. Uh, it seems to be fully fully realized. And one of the things that Anderson said after the film was that uh, he takes issue with certain period pieces where women's hairstyles, particularly their color are uh, either too subtle or complex than what was available at the time. Sure. Like, he actually did the research, and he, he pointed out that... <coughs> that back then, in the 1950s, you had basically three different colors of hair dye that you could get, and hmm. it was, like, uh, black... black, blonde, and blue, or something like that. Um, and so he's... he has very clearly kind of created the... The look and the feel, um, but the the actual content of this film is really very different from anything he's ever attempted. I feel.
1: I would agree with that.
0: Um, okay. And so you've got a film that is mature in a lot of ways, and sure. mat- about uh, the filmmaking style is very kind of mature, and the the, the themes are subtle and abstract, phantom, if you will.
1: Uh, I I like this film quite a bit, Andrew. How did you feel about Phantom Thread? I liked it as well, and I wasn't sure from the trailer whether mm-hmm. I would or not. Um, if you're a listener of the podcast, you know that I was not a fan of Inherent Vice, which was Paul mm-hmm. Thomas and, Paul Thomas Anderson's last outing, right? And um, so I was a little worried. Uh, I was a little worried that uh, that he had gone in some direction that I could not follow. <clears throat> But, uh, but I actually found this film to be very, very fascinating. And in keeping with the sort of, uh, obsessions of PTA, um, uh-huh. the kind of, uh, extreme personalities that he is fascinated by, the kind of, uh, obsessive people that he is fascinated by. See, mm-hmm. There Will Be Blood or Punch Drunk Love or, uh, pretty much almost all of his, all of his films, um... Uh I, I think that the, uh, you could not be more right in saying that the the period feel is absolutely complete and enveloping. I feel like mm-hmm. nothing seems like it's out of place. Everything seems like it is meant to be um as it is. It doesn't uh, there's nothing anachronistic uh in this film that takes you out mm-hmm. of the period. Uh right. the attention to details is extraordinary and honestly watching this film the cinematography blew my mind like it was it, it you talk about it it uh looking like a film from the the 50s like a a period piece you know all of the period detail is there but it looks like a film from the 50s as well i mean it looks like the sumptuousness of the color and the kind of i don't know if i haven't read about how what kind of film stock he used or mm. what uh what they did to achieve the effect that they did, but it felt like we were looking at uh, like um, something with a different emulsion, <laughs> something that captured uh, color differently than what we see usually nowadays. Sure. Um, when you go back and you watch those movies from the fifties and the sixties, they have such vibrant, interesting, even strange color to our eyes today. You know, you watch those old Technicolor movies, and you're just like, "Wow, this just looks so." vibrant and different and I felt like this film had a similar feel and for one that deals so much in sartorial you know uh elegance elegance uh I I felt like it was especially important that that show because it felt very uh sumptuous yeah and I was a little kind of
0: uncertain at first whether or not this film really needed to be on 70 millimetre um, because I, f- right. I felt like uh, I felt hateful eight to, <laughs> to digress. I thought the hateful eight didn't need to be on 70 millimeter.
1: Yeah,
0: um, and I kind of associate that this epic format with uh, I guess traditional action packed epics or epics that depict a lot of landscape and not yeah. just portraiture. Yeah. Uh, but um, hey, if he wants to shoot in 70, please. Do it because he does it so well, and it, it just looked great, and uh, you could kind of get a feeling for all the detail a little bit stronger. You mentioned at the beginning how you felt that seventy millimeter was was such a primo format, and it is. Yeah. Um, I feel like in my work as a video essayist, I have grown accustomed to seeing digital imagery, yeah, and so yeah. when I was looking at this film in the theater, it did it did kind of take some adjusting to get in, kind of get into the feel of of film again, projected 70
1: yeah,
0: or or just projected film at all. Um, but there is something kind of, there's an extraordinary kind of almost like accidental amalgam that happens specifically with 70 millimeter films once they're digitized because, Mm -hmm. uh, like, just to kind of geek out for a second here, you know, there's, <laughs> there's movie formats, there's MOVs, MP4s, AVIs, like all these different containers and formats for your film. But the one that seems to look absolutely the best are MKVs, which are Matruska files. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and Inherent Vice and The Master, for example, both shot on 70, they looked oh, so good when digitized. To the point where I feel like if there's some kind of a happy medium to be reached these days between film and digital, if there's some kind of reconciliation you can do, <laughs> I think the best looking thing I've ever seen is to see something that was shot on 70 and then digitized in, to MKV format. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, man. But but yeah, but uh, uh, I guess you know, uh, tech specs aside, this movie has extraordinary acting. Oh, Daniel Day yeah. Lewis turns in a great performance, and it's unlike anything I've seen from him, he's not repeating himself. I no, feel. not at all. Not at all. And, I feel like Leslie uh, Manville
1: also steals the show in this movie. Absolutely. Oh and
0: and Vicki Vicky Crepes has he's the well cast. Oh, yeah. I think she brings just the right well. amount of warmth and it's it's a dynamite cast. Um, yeah.
1: It really is. I don't want to give away too much of the, <clears throat> of course. the twists and turns. Yeah, because it um, is... The surprise of this film is is rather substantial and I would hate to spoil it for anybody because it's, it's so unexpected <laughs> for it, me. It
0: was. Yeah. There's really only one trailer yeah. that I know of that's been circulating for this film and believe me, like it doesn't reveal anything, nothing. So don't be, don't be afraid to watch that over and over again. Like I did. And I'm sure my co-host did yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah. But um let's talk about the the music a little bit. Uh Johnny Greenwood I was kind of uh, I was take, kind of taken aback at just how kind of often the the score was was rather classical. Very uh, much so, yeah. His Greenwood's work is known to be as I said di- uh, atonal or dissonant. And other than the the theme that plays in the trailer for this movie which I loved a lot of the music was was very much kind of, uh, I would say, either free from irony or 100% ironic to the core.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I would say that it's, at this point in their collaboration, I would say that it's free from irony. I don't think that Johnny Greenwood is playing around with the scores that he's doing, especially for Paul Thomas Anderson. Mm-hmm. I think that... Um, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm i one of those people who loved Radiohead in their early days and then really turned off once they started getting into, like, sonic landscape territory where they were just... Tell like, me,
0: when was it? What what was the album that turned you off?
1: Oh, I I mean, pretty much everything after OK Computer, I was not uh-huh. sold on. Yeah. Kid yeah, A. Yeah, well, Kid a, Kid a, that was a
0: major, major turning point.
1: Yeah. And and that's when I was like, oh, this is what we're doing now. Okay, great. Uh, I'll catch you guys when you get back to making rock and roll.
0: Oh, um, <laughs> I've, you haven't caught them yet, again, have you? No, I have
1: not. I, I mean, I've listened to everything that they've done, but I just like, I, you know, it's like one pass through the album that I'm like, okay, that was interesting, and I never go back to it. Yeah. Um. But what he's been doing with uh, Paul Thomas Anderson has been endlessly fascinating to me. And uh, and and for for this uh, film, as I was watching, I was thinking, oh, that's nice. Johnny Greenwood's grown up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I don't mean that in a in a pejorative sense. I mean uh, clearly, John, Johnny Greenwood is an exceedingly talented musician and always has been. But uh, it, it it felt more like a uh, like a very serious film score. Um, mature is the word that keeps rattling around in my head. Sure, yeah, mature is a good a good phrase to use for that. A good word to use for that um it it didn't sound like Johnny Greenwood in a way um and yet it was very Johnny Greenwood um mm-hmm. and and that I think is the I think that's a, an accomplished musician doing great work if it sounds like it could be uh you know it sounds appropriate to the film it sounds appropriate to the setting um and mm-hmm. yet it still sounds it still has a little bit of that uh, Johnny Greenwood flair to it. It's still got a little bit of that that almost dissonant, uncomfortable flavor, and and that matches well with the progression of the story as we go through this film.
0: I actually could have done with more uncomfortable vibes mm. from Johnny Greenwood. I think I think that the the beginning of the film, the first act, I would say, pretty yeah. Cut cut and dry. The first act is is uh, is very much kind of geared to kind of uh, lull you into this feeling of grandeur and 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 pageantry. Sure, you know because we're being introduced to the House of Woodcock and John and Greenwood's score, The House of Woodcock, which you can listen to on YouTube, is also playing. Uh, and then once kind of the plot thickens, well, that's when we hear, I believe, for the first time this synthesizer motif mm-hmm, or yeah. that, you know, this kind of uh, organ, which is obviously probably the most foreign instrument to that world so far. Um, you know, there's the, the, the feeling of the house of Woodcock is, is orchestral. And, and when that kind of unnerving, like electric keyboard note yeah. starts playing, dun, 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 um, that's kind of when I'm like, okay, now I know where I am. Like I, I this is, this is territory that, I kind of expected we would get to when I knew that this was Anderson's new film with uh, Greenwood. Um, But uh, that being said, nothing wrong with my expectations being subverted. I think that's, that's enjoyable too, of course. Um, One of the other interesting things that Paul Thomas Anderson said is that he wanted to create the feeling of, a gothic romance. And uh he he said that he was inspired by Hitchcock. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah. And um he was inspired by his classic movie called Gaslight with Ingrid Bergman, of course, yeah. Um and that's where we get you know, the term this, gaslighting. Exactly. And while this movie like it's certainly very referential to those films and it's a period piece of course and it feels like it's from the 50s. Kind of do in partial measure to those kind of uh, atonal or or incongruous keyboard sounds, and also the the look of the film. I think it's extremely contemporary as well. Uh, yeah, it's it's I th- I think it plays uh, great if you were to put it side by side with anything else on the internet, even there's something about it that there's, I think it's, it doesn't really kind of, it's not too slow where that you'll, you'll be bored, but then again, it's not, it's, it's, it's got kind of a fluid, uh, relaxed pace, but there's something about it that it's, it still seems very much from the 2000 teens. And I, I think that that's pretty cool.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, in the same way that the film itself as a whole not just the score feels simultaneously like a a I don't know a Douglas Sirk film or something from the the 50s. Old and new. Yeah, but also like a a a Paul Thomas Anderson film. Um mm-hmm. you know, I mean there are things that happen in this film that seem terribly out of place in in one of those films where we to watch, you know, uh uh, those films, and uh, but yet very much at home in the Paul Thomas Anderson movie sure um, and i know, I noticed things he was doing too,
0: like he there's a really good video essay out there that uh Jacob T. Swinney made about the extreme close ups in Paul Thomas Anderson films, yeah, yeah. where he just collected them all from his films, and there's plenty of those in Phantom Thread too that
1: are yeah. very kind of trademark uh, work from him. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um and so it, it, the, as a whole the film was a joy to experience because it was it was at once the Paul Thomas Anderson that we know and love and simultaneously felt very very new and different for him. It felt like he was treading a new territory and uh it's just a fascinating film. I I I've, I've heard tales of people standing up and walking out of this film out of boredom or Distaste or whatever the case may be. But I I honestly can't understand that. I was riveted the entire time. Yeah, there's something there's something about the trailer
0: too that it, it makes it very watchable because like as you as you said, Andrew, like I too had some misgivings about it originally. Sure. Like after I saw the trailer for the first time, I was like, you know, this this is the new PTA movie. You know, I'm supposed to get behind this character, I'm supposed yeah, to be excited yeah. by this guy who makes dresses. Um, And sure, it's not kind of the the adrenaline ride that There'll Be Blood is, but it still is extremely fascinating. Yeah. And I'm really curious to see how it's going to fare at the Oscars, because I think that's going to do better at the Oscars than it did at the Golden Globes.
1: It'll be interesting um, to see, uh, because I feel like... uh... I feel like the Oscars as a whole are are kind of a crapshoot this year. I feel like it. There's, um, uh, I feel like everything's uh, up in the air. Uh, I don't feel like the Golden Globes were necessarily representative of what the Oscars are gonna sort of go after this year. Um, but well, I guess question... we we won't know until the twenty fourth or whatever.
0: Yeah, and I I wonder like when do they
1: actually cast their nominations? They're casting them now. I think they the. Ballots opened on like the 7th or something. Okay. Monday of this week. And then they close in like another week. And then they announce them on the 24th. It's
0: almost like are they going to vote for the films they like the best or are they going to do the honorable
1: thing? Well, who knows? Who knows? (laughs) Uh, All I'm hoping is that uh, Greta Gerwig gets a director nod, which obviously the Golden Globes failed to do. But right. they were they were also trying to symbolically nominate Ridley Scott for what he did with All the Money in the World, which is understandable. I, I get the the gesture, but it would probably be more meaningful to nominate Credit <laughs> Gerwig.
0: Sure, yeah. Somebody who really deserves it for the work that they did. Yeah, yeah. Um, Although I yeah, haven't seen well, All
1: the Money in the World yet, so who knows? Maybe it's uh, – it I don't know. Sometimes you can just tell, and
0: then if you read a few reviews – but yeah, Phantom Thread I think is 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 captivating, and I was so happy to have seen it in San Francisco at the legendary Castro Theater. Oh yeah, man, I'm with, jealous. With, with, with PTA in attendance, um, he was when he came out. He introduced his film. He actually came out before the film and, and said hi to everybody. Yeah, and he was wearing a uh, black blazer mm-hmm. and like mm-hmm. a uh, like a brown shirt. Sure. But then he was wearing these dark blue like. Track pants, like (laughs) this, like long yellow strip all the way down from his hip to his ankle. Yeah, like like running pants. So in San Francisco, you know, it's a funky town. Sure. Like when I saw Martin Scorsese there, he was wearing purple dress socks with his shoes. So yeah, come on.
1: There you go. Um,
0: But but it was just a really cool experience, and uh, I wonder, you know, I guess you would have to live in a big city or near a big city if you want to be able to have the seventy millimeter. Experience,
1: with, <coughs> yeah, I'm assuming movie. so, yeah,
0: but uh, but um, you know, I, I it's definitely worth seeing in the theater though because the, the the visuals are extremely uh just pleasant and and involving
1: and and different from anything else in the theaters right now, yeah. And it may feel like the kind of film that you can be like, oh, I'll just wait for Netflix because it's it's just a you know, it's a little intimate character study, which you're not wrong, but. It's also, I think, if you can see it in 70, at the very least, if you can see it in digital, even, but definitely if you can see it in 70, go see it while it's in the theaters, because it, uh, it is shot with that in mind, and uh, and the, the colors and the textures just leap off the screen in there. It's really, it reminded me a little bit of uh, a film I've talked about many times on this podcast, which is Bright Star, Jane mm-hmm. Campion film, which I've often described as the most tactile movie going experience that I've ever had. Uh, I never felt more like the, the photography was touchable um, mm-hmm. than I did in that film, which is a film that I really, really love. Yeah. Um, But this film comes as close as anything I've seen to, to that sensation that I had, you know, in a theater in 2009 or whenever that was that it came out.
0: Well, I remember back, you know, Seeing movies and film all the time and, and seeing <laughs> uh, 70 millimeter films at film school. And, yeah. You know, I mean, we saw Aliens, uh, In the Line of Fire, The Dark Crystal. Yeah. These were all on 70 and
1: it's it makes a difference, people. Yeah, I'll it's never different. forget. I'll never forget watching Aliens in 70 millimeter. It was one of the most visceral experiences I ever had in the movie theater. It was almost as visceral as when I actually fought aliens later in real life. Whoa, what? I
0: know. Yeah, serious. Crazy. Have you have to tell me the story sometime. The fact that you had to qualify that statement by saying in a the theater at the end like I was thinking like I was thinking like is Andrew going to say this is one of the most visceral experiences he's ever had? <laughs> well, maybe. In a the theater.
1: <laughs> maybe.
0: Could be. It's an intense movie. It is. Well, I think uh that's kind of how we feel about Phantom Thread. Yeah. Uh, I, it's uh, one of the best movies I've seen this year. Will it be on my top ten list?
1: I don't know. I guess I'll have to find out in another couple of weeks when we do that top ten list.
0: That's right. It's it's
1: coming up, though, folks, because we're, we're catching up on
0: all of the films that have been released within the past few weeks uh, here in the United States. So uh, once we see all of the ones from last year... We're going to do an episode uh, where we talk about our top 10 of 2017. Yeah, look for
1: it at the end of January.
0: Yeah, that sounds about right. Sounds about right, right? Cool. All right, well, our next episode, in case you're wondering, is going to be The Post. So stay tuned for that one. We will see you then.